listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. And it really is my pleasure, my delight to help out when Brad takes a, I'm assuming, a well-deserved break. I can't <laughs> Well, if you have your Bibles, <clears throat> I know it's going to be up there anyway. <clears throat> Would you mind, <clears throat> if you don't mind, <clears throat> excuse me, turning to a familiar passage, Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. Luke chapter 4, 14 to 30. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm reading from the New American Standard. I happen to like that one. hope it's not offensive to anybody. <laughs> Luke chapter 4, 14 to 30. <clears throat> and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which are falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote the proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Seraph in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Excuse me. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Well, let me first say, it used to be customary, and maybe it still is in some churches, <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, that when a pastor or a speaker uh, of the church give, finished giving the message, uh, the pastor would go to the roughly to the exit of the church, 
And as people were exiting, uh, he would greet the folks and shake their hand and generally exchange some nice words. This is clearly not what was happening here. Okay, quite, quite the opposite. And so the portion of scripture, again, is uh, very familiar and it's very early in Christ's public ministry. And again, I, I, I'll use this a number of times. We have to understand that it's early in Christ's very, uh, ministry. And as we begin to look at this passage, we must also not lose sight of the fact that Luke is emphasizing uh, the work of the Spirit, and Luke wants us to establish that Jesus is now filled with the Spirit as he begins his public ministry. And Luke begins this emphasis with the Holy Spirit with Christ's baptism, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him. Now again, that's significant because prior to that, this is what we read of Christ. Jesus increased in wisdom and grace of God. We also read, Jesus increased in wisdom and favor with God. But we do not read up to that point that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit up until his baptism. And so continuing in that theme, in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, as in this chapter, Luke continues with that theme. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted. And so following his temptation, Luke continues with the theme that we just started reading from 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And therefore, Luke sets the stage for us as Jesus enters the synagogue of his youth, and his first words as he begins to read is, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, it's significant, and I'm going to proceed very cautiously for the next second or two. I'm not sure what words to use, but Luke is telling us that once Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit was upon him, He was, and I'm going to use the word different. It might be an incorrect word. He was different. And and what I mean is, he was always the son of God, please. He was always uh, the Messiah. But with the Holy Spirit now upon him, Jesus, the son of God, was fully empowered with the Spirit to begin his public ministry. I think that's what Luke is getting at. And it could be also that Luke is emphasizing on the purpose of the Trinity as Jesus begins his public ministry. God the Father sent the Son. The Holy Spirit empowered the Son. And then the Son, Jesus, carried out the will of the Father under the power of the Spirit. So again, as he begins his ministry, we have to... I think grasp the fact that he is empowered, fully empowered with the Holy Spirit. And, and again, not to undermine his time up to that time, but there appears to be something different. Different. And so we find Jesus in the synagogue at Nazareth. And synagogues came into being sometime after the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar. And they evolved, synagogues evolved, not as a substitute for a temple, but they evolved as a place for the Hebrews to meet 
to sing their hymns, to, to learn of their Old Testament scriptures, uh, to read Old Testament scriptures, to teach and to learn. And it's not a far stretch then, uh, to a certain extent, when we enter or when we realize the early churches, what did they do? It was really a continuation, was it not, of what was done in the synagogues, singing hymns, learning scripture, teaching and learning. And we still do that today. And so Jesus is now under the power of the Spirit, coming back to Nazareth, where he had grown up, and enters the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom. Now, he knew most, if not all, of the people in Nazareth. Archaeologists tell us that Nazareth, even though the Scripture calls it a city, and usually in Scripture, when it uses the word city, it doesn't mean a Toronto or New York, far from it. But Nazareth, according to our, Nazareth, according to archaeologists at that time, had no more than five or six hundred people. Some even say less than five hundred. So the point I'm trying to make is Jesus in Nazareth knew almost everybody, if not everybody. And so Christ's reputation had begun to, to be spread, had begun to spread. And it's likely, as these folks are going to their synagogue that morning, they were wondering about this Jesus who they knew, who they had grown up with, wondering all about him. Now, again, we can almost picture the scene, or I can almost picture the scene, and I don't think, again, it's too much of a stretch to imagine a few of Jesus' friends, childhood friends, walking to the synagogue that day, wondering about their childhood friend. This Jesus that they had grown up with. They had heard about, again because his reputation had spread, about his teaching. They had heard about miracles that this Jesus, that they knew well, had, had performed. I also don't think it's much of a stretch to picture, uh, I'm going to assume, I don't know, that Jesus stayed with his mother as he returns to Nazareth. And so they are on their way to the synagogue. And I can also envision Jesus' brothers and sisters, or half-brothers and sisters, walking to the synagogue, having heard about their brother, and wondering, or having second thoughts about their brother. Because we know later on, they clearly said, he's beside himself. He's crazy. And so this is the setting. This is the scene as Jesus goes to the synagogue, that in the synagogue that day would be his family, would be his childhood friends, and people that he knew quite well, that he'd grown up with. And so Jesus is now in the synagogue, and the normal practice of synagogues during that particular time is that a few hymns would be sung, and then there would be a reading from the law, and then a followed by a second reading from the prophets. And that's what Jesus was, was given. Now whether, again, commentators differ on this, whether he was given the portion of Isaiah or whether, because the wording from the Greek is a little different, they, they say, or whether he just went to Isaiah, we're not sure. But Jesus is reading from the prophets. And then uh, what normally happens in, happened in a synagogue is once the reading of the prophet took place, and then a discussion would ensue. 
uh, people would like to hear, wanted to hear, what the message was from that particular prophet. And that's why even later on in the New Testament, we have the Apostle Paul going into where? The synagogues. And he reasoned with them from Scripture. Because he had the freedom. That was the custom. You read the prophets, and then you discuss. What does the prophet, what is the prophet saying to us here? And so that is about to happen here in this particular day in this synagogue. Now, it's important to establish context, as always, is it not? We must understand the teaching that the congregation would have been steeped in as Jesus begins to read. In terms of what would they understand as Jesus begins to read this passage from Isaiah. Even as Jesus is reading the prophets, even before he says the words, Today this is fulfilled, we have to realize that where were their minds going? We must understand to some extent in that time what was their understanding. What the doors of scriptural knowledge opened up in their minds. Much like, I think we're all the same, if somebody's reading a passage, you're going to talk about a passage, even today, probably some of you, I'm talking from Luke. Some of you have an understanding of Luke, uh, and you probably know it well. And so certain doors of understanding of Scripture open up for you. And so we must try to figure out what was it that they understood when Jesus begins to read Isaiah. There's a few things. First, I mean, probably more than a few things. But first of all, uh, as a general backdrop, we again must not, must, we must grasp the fact that Israel was in eager anticipation, eagerly awaiting at any moment for the coming of the Messiah. We cannot or cannot be overemphasized that the Jewish nation was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah at any moment. And that thinking, that expectation was paramount during this particular time. Both scriptural and non-scriptural evidences tell us that. Almost all events, almost all teaching, it uh, doesn't matter who, who, who gave it, was measured against the possibility, was measured against the expectation of the possibility of the coming Messiah. Luke himself states in chapter 3 regarding the expectation of the Messiah, he says in chapter 3.15, people were in a state of expectation. The whole nation was expecting at any moment the Messiah spoken of throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Now, we know that some folks had already claimed to be the Messiah. And for some of these, they had followers who were zealots. And for a large number of these, they ended up being killed by the Romans. And others that were not were seen by the religious leaders with, with great suspicion. Witnessed the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to Christ, coming to John the Baptist and saying, Are you the Christ? Again, everything was measured against the possibility of, Jesus, of the Christ coming at any moment. So that's one. That's the backdrop, the religious fervor of that time. As well, Jesus is reading the passage from Isaiah, and at least two lessons from this passage would surely come to mind. 
The first is this. When Jesus refers to the favorable year of the Lord, I mean, he's quoting from Isaiah, also known as the year of the Jubilee, Jesus and Isaiah are referring back to the Old Testament law from Leviticus, and this Leviticus chapter 25. And that law provided that once every 50 years, debts would be canceled, slaves would be set free, and the land restored to its former owners. Well, why? Why was there this year of jubilee? Well, the poor and the destitute of that time, who could not have provided for themselves, would therefore have to borrow money, or they'd have to mortgage their lands, because they weren't allowed to sell their lands outside the family, or many of them, again, Scripture bears this out, many of them indentured themselves or their children to slavery so that they could survive, so that they could feed themselves. And so the favorable year of the Lord was a reversal of fortunes for these people, for God's people. A momentous day looked forward to, especially those who had been indentured, slaved, etc., poor, they looked forward to this day. It was, shall I say, a day of salvation for many. Those uh, who otherwise had absolutely no hope whatsoever for the future except to look forward to that one day when they would be released from slavery. Look forward to that one day down the road, 50 years or however, wherever it was at that particular time, whereby their debts would be forgiven. Now, in hindsight, as we consider what Jesus is saying, we should not fail that this, to see that this was a day of starting afresh for the people of that time, a day when the meek would be blessed, when the fortunes of the poor would be reversed, they would, as it were, be made rich again. Slaves would literally be set free. Lands would literally be restored and debts forgiven. And the congregation, as they're listening to this, was well-versed in what the favorable day of the Lord meant to the nation of Israel, and in particular, what it meant to the poor and to the destitute of that particular time. And its meaning for, to Israel, who had promised a great, brighter future for the destitute. So that's one. A second thing, and it's significant, well, it's all significant, sorry. The favorable year of the Lord uh, the Jubilee, when it took place, was not an event that was celebrated in isolation. They knew this. The congregation would have also known that God had specific means to usher in that favorable year of the Lord. Again, from Leviticus chapter 25. This great day of blessing. Well, what happened as the Jubilee is celebrated? Something else was taking place at exactly the same time. Jubilee was ushered in on the Day of Atonement. And that is what Jews call Yom Kippur, which is a very special date, even to this date, for them. It was the, great, it was the day a goat would be sacrificed, its blood sprinkled or poured on the altar, and another goat would be taken, and the priest would place his hands on the goat, and symbolically, the sins of the nation would be on the goat, 
and the goat will be taken out, released in the desert, never to return again. The sins of the nation would be taken outside of the nation of Israel. The Old Testament uses the words, would be taken outside the camp. So the nation, the nation of Israel would have its sins forgiven. That was the Day of Atonement, and it took place to usher in the year of the Jubilee. So this is what the congregation knew of these two passages as Jesus reads about the favorable year of the Lord and the Day of Atonement. Did they understand all of this that we just talked about? Well, likely not. Likely not. But we have the benefit of looking back to see the incredible picture here of the favorable year of the Lord overlapping with the Day of Atonement. And of course, the picture is of Christ being sacrificed. Our sins taken away, never to be brought back, if, if you will. God ushering in the favorable year of the Lord for us. Our sins forever forgiven, redeemed from slavery, restored again to a lively hope. Our debt of sin forgiven, paid in full by Christ's blood on the altar of that horrible cross. The congregation of the synagogue, at the synagogue did not see that clearly. Uh, they did not see the Messiah in the Yom Kippur or the favorable year of the Lord as we do today. But they did understand clearly that these two days represented a great blessing from God that was yet to come. They were looking forward to it. So as Jesus continues to read from Isaiah... And it's interesting that the portion that was read is from two chapters, chapter 58 and chapter 61 of Isaiah. Here, the congregation from these two chapters would also have known for certainty in that passages from Isaiah that the prophet is looking forward to, as he writes this, to the great day of the Messiah. They would understand that. That's what they've been taught all this time. And the prophet Isaiah, in previous chapters leading up to that, had been talking about Judah's disobedience and everything that's going to happen to Judah because they had rejected God and God's laws. And, And Isaiah had said some horrible, terrible things that would happen to Judah because of their rejection of God up until this point. But at this particular point, roughly chapters in the 50s, there is a change, particularly in 58 and 61. There's a change in the tone of these letters in Isaiah, read by Christ. And this chapter, read, speaks of the release of captives, giving sight to the blind, freeing those who are oppressed. What's he speaking of? Speaking of Jubilee. Once again, Isaiah. And what Isaiah is saying when the passages before and after and here are considered is this. This will be the time, Isaiah is saying, when when this takes place, that there is then the coming of the Messiah. The hope for son of David would once again rule, restore, bring in justice, bring in peace. This was a chapter or chapters in Isaiah of hope as seen by the Jewish nation. 
And they saw this passage as one in which the promised Messiah would usher in this great new dispensation that they were expecting at any, any second. When another mighty king, another mighty David would come and restore the fortunes of Israel as in the favorable year of the Lord. So with that understanding, that's what they had. Jesus finishes reading this passage. He hands a scroll back to the attendant, sits down, and begins to teach on this particular passage. What would the congregation then be expecting from the person who teaches from such a passage? In this case, Jesus. They would be expecting a similar message as what had always been given on this passage up to that point by the religious leaders. They were expecting a message that says that God blesses Israel, that there is a coming king, a great king, and Israel's enemies would finally be destroyed, Israel would be restored to its former glory, physical justice and peace would prevail, and the blessing of God would once again forever be upon Israel. Israel's, as it were, I say this tongue-in-cheek, but would live happily ever after. And the religious leaders kept saying, just wait a little longer. It's just going to happen. It's going to happen. But that's what they expected. And in reality, again, as an aside, the message of Christ when he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, was fulfilled, though not in how they expected it to be. Though they didn't see it, a great king did come. And he stood, or at that moment, sat in their midst, which again is part of the pointing of the Holy, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The anointing in the Old Testament often points to the anointing of a king. This king had been anointed by the Holy Spirit from God himself. And Israel, true Israel, is being renewed. God's justice does prevail, and God's blessing forever does fall upon the true spiritual descendants of Abraham, though they didn't see it. So at first, it appears there's no dispute. The synagogue was amazed at Jesus' words and the grace in which he spoke. They questioned truly, is this the son of Mary and Joseph? But shortly, the congregation was to turn quite hostile. A congregation who was made up of his friends, his family, and people that knew him quite well. So why did the people get so agitated? Why did they turn hostile in, a very, in, in such a quick, quick manner? And the answer, in short, is because he ruffled their comfort feathers because they resented what he was implying by his teaching, because they had a God made in their own image, locked away into their own, in their minds, and any change to that God made in their image was not acceptable to them. And they got really angry, and they wanted to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I digress for a moment, lest we become too critical of the congregation in the synagogue that day. Often this rejection of a message that we, 
don't understand or a message that we don't like, what do we do? Uh, is it almost human nature to rather than sit back and say, I really don't understand it? I'm going to really check into this to see if this in fact be so. What do we do? We not only reject the message, but we reject the messenger as well. Because every one of us, and I speak for myself, but I'm going to be bold and say every one of us, has strong views and strong opinions when we hear something that doesn't sit well with what we understand something to be. And we get uncomfortable, and we get upset. And rather than say, let's check it out, we get angry. In the extreme, of course, history bears this out. It leads, on a macro level, to world conflicts. But on an individual level, it leads to attacks on the character and the assassination of individuals. Because, unfortunately, man not only attacks the message, but man attacks the messenger as well. We don't have to look too far to almost any type of serious debate. And I would say, in recent years, this is even more prevalent, to notice these debates quickly turn into name-calling and character assassination. We don't like the message, therefore we kill the messenger. And folks, sadly this attitude... Uh, doesn't just prevail in the world. This attitude of character assassination permeates in believers in Jesus Christ as well. My reading tells me this attitude is prevalent among believers who don't share the same understanding of some points in Scripture. And I can go on and on and give numerous, numerous examples or believers who don't share the same political view, again, witness recent years. And this same attitude of character assassination is prevalent in believers in Jesus Christ. And what happens is horrible, dreadful, derogatory things are said of other Christians who don't share our particular point of view, who don't share our side of a particular position. Things that are, are said by Christians to the opposite side, things even the world finds amazing. What I read and hear from news from various sources is that the reputation of evangelical Christianity has been seriously tarnished in recent years. Not because Christians are suffering for righteousness' sake, but rather because of the hostility and the hypocrisy at which Christians treat each other. Christians condemning each other in front of the world. Is this what 21st century Christianity has become? Is this what our Lord meant when he said, we are to be known by our love toward each other? that we kill the messenger that we don't agree with. The Apostle James tells us, and he's speaking to believers in Jesus Christ, do not speak evil against one another. 
He goes on to say in chapter 4 again, do not complain brother against brother. This is how we're to live. But the world does not see evangelical Christianity today living like that. My point here is this. This is the same attitude in the synagogue. And it's the same attitude that followed the apostles as they presented the message of Jesus Christ. That was different than what the the nation had heard. They killed the messenger rather than try to understand the message. People have been taught and believed a certain scriptural message from their religious leaders, and in their minds, that was unmovable. And their mindset was, a great warrior king was going to come, physically strike down Israel's enemies, physically restore justice, physically restore peace, physically release captives, and restore the fortunes of the poor. They desperately wanted to believe this. And I understand that. I mean, there's certain things we want to believe. They didn't want to debate. They just wanted that to happen. And everything else was heresy. That was the context of the nation of Israel at that time. And so Jesus finishes reading the carpenter whom they thought they knew. He sits down and in effect says this. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. He says, I am that king that you're expecting. I'm the embodiment of the favorable year of the Lord. I am Jubilee. I am the atonement. I'm the sacrifice on the altar that enabled the other goat to take your sins away from the nation, never to be brought back again. I'm the deliverer spoken here by Isaiah is what Jesus is saying. We have no record of the people saying anything short of questioning whether who is this guy really. But Jesus' comments in verse 23 seems to give us a hint as to what many of them were thinking sarcastically about Christ. And essentially they're saying, if you are the Messiah, if you really are from God, if you are full of the Holy Spirit, then prove it. Do we hear right now what we hear you've been doing in Capernaum? Start doing some miracles. Then and only then will we believe that you're from God. Then Jesus seems to turn the topic around a little bit, but we will see that there's a connection, of course. He says, truly I say to you, no prophet is without honor in his hometown. And he says this, of course, because he's reading their critical minds. And Jesus is saying, in their hearts, their hearts were so hardened like the, uh, their hearts, the hearts of the, their forefathers, and proceeds to point them to two illustrations as a parallel to their own situation. In the same way that Elijah had no honor in his country, in the same way that Elisha had no honor in his country, so you too are treating me in the same way. And so he proceeds, he points to Israel's hardened hearts and basically says this, that God blesses, blessed the Gentiles back then rather than Israel in the same way that they were about to now reject God's messenger. So two things, the illustration speaks of two things. One, there was a famine. And all the Jews, all of Israel, 
needed food. But Jesus says, God didn't go to the Jews. What he did is he provided for one widow who was a Gentile, not a Jew. And the other situation was healing. Well, there's many people, there's many blind, lame in Israel, but God did not go there and provide healing. God went to an enemy of Israel, Syria, a Gentile, and healed this particular man. And Jesus says, rather than God providing for the needs of Israel, God, through Elijah and Elisha, blessed Gentiles rather than the Jews. This they could not accept from anyone, including this person whom they knew well, standing, sitting in front of them. Because they were taught that God curses the enemies of Israel, that God blesses Israel, not any other nation, Only the Jews were deserving of God's grace. Only the Jews were deserving of God's blessing. Gentiles were enemies of Israel. They are dogs, is what they call them. How dare you compare us to Gentiles? And thus they resorted to killing the messenger, or tried to kill the messenger, than trying to understand the message of Christ. They hated the message so much that they were willing to kill this person who they grew up with, this person who they knew. God's goodness and mercy to the Gentiles could not, would not be appropriated by these people who thought and believed that they had special privileges, special claims on God. That was their thinking, and that's why they resented what Jesus is saying, that Jesus is going to bless the Gentiles, has blessed the Gentiles. And this is the message of Christ in Nazareth. As he embarks, this is the beginning of his public ministry. He sets the foundation for that public ministry that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has come to redeem a people not from every nation, not just a Jewish nation, to redeem everyone from every corner of the world for any who trust in him. Do you remember when the disciples of John the Baptist came to confirm whether or not Jesus was the expected one? Because they got a little confused. They expected certain other things. And Jesus replies with a very similar reply to what he just right here at the beginning of his public ministry. And Jesus replies and says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. What's he pointing to? He's pointing to Jubilee. He's pointing to the day of atonement. The gospel is being preached to them pointing right back that he is the fulfillment of these laws. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so, folks, this is the Messiah, the promise of God. This Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of all who trust in him, this is the same message 2,000 years later. On the cross, it's his sacrifice. He came to usher by that sacrifice, he came to usher in, or he did usher in, the perpetual year of Jubilee, 
not once every 50 years. It is here. He is our jubilee. He is our day of atonement. He is our atonement for all who place their trust in him. And so in this encounter with the congregation of Jesus' youth, we witness a foreshadowing, which is going to happen three years from then, of the ultimate rejection of Christ, culminating in his crucifixion. His acquaintances, his friends, hated Jesus for what he was implying and wanted to kill him by throwing him off a cliff. Ultimately, the masses hated Jesus for the same thing and killed him upon a horrible cross. I would think some at that moment not realizing that it was this horrible cross that was the means for their salvation later on. And so this is our Messiah, bringing hope to all who are sinners. And that's all of us, sins forgiven, Jew, Gentile, from every nation, for anyone who looks to the cross of Jesus Christ, the cost of that jubilee, the sacrificial blood, which was Jesus Christ on the altar of the cross. His death takes our sin outside the camp, never to be remembered by God again. This is whom we praise this morning. This is whom we praise every day, whether individually or corporately. Shall we pray?